It's, we're calling it the good news according to Job, which is sort of interesting because we don't think of Job's situation as being very good. Last week, Reuben took us down into the dungeon with Job. Very dark experiences that Job was having reminded us even that death is imminent for all of us and that we need to be ready for that. Uh, this week, Craig was going to take us to chapter 19, but as some of you know, he, um, he's doing, he did his brother-in-law's uh, memorial service yesterday down in Florida. So we flipped weeks. So we're, if you're a sequential person, I'm sorry. We're looking at chapter 32 today and chapter 19 next week. So that's just, that's just the way things have worked. But uh, my title is one simple word, justify, justify. I'm sure all of you love racehorsing, right? <laughs> justify is the name of a racehorse that is, you're going to hear a lot about next weekend because he's running for the triple crown. He won, I guess it's a he, he or she, he won the, 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 the Kentucky Derby a couple weeks ago, and then the Preakness in Baltimore several weeks ago, and so the Triple Crown in Belmont is, is, is up for stakes for the horse named Justify. It's an interesting word, Justify. Um, <clears throat> we use it often. You think about uh, a, a written document, you think about something that is left justified or right justified. What's it all about? It has to do with something being straight or lined up correctly, right? Is left or right justified. Um, to justify one's actions is to say, I didn't act crookedly or stray off the correct path. I kept it straight. The words righteous and upright and just and justification and justify, these have the same root in the original languages. And the, the word upright is a, is a similar word that's used in contrast to leaning in one direction or another. Upright versus leaning, being crooked. We hear people say, I knew I was supposed to do that, but I felt justified because whatever. Justified. To do it right. To justify, it's about right standing. To declare something or someone is right. The verse from Habakkuk that was quoted in Romans 3 passages, the just or the righteous ones shall live by faith. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. And the overall scope of, of salvation theology, to justify, is to declare righteousness, to declare right. It is a legal declaration that someone that is not just or not right or, or, or righteous is to be considered righteous or upright or just. To have a clean record based upon the righteous record of someone that's given to them. Now, why am I talking about all this justice and justified language? Because the text we're going to look at today talks about this. this words, these words are there. Uh, Job, chapter 31, verse 40, the, end of the last part of verse 40, to chapter uh, um, 32, verse 5. Only, only five and a half verses. We're going to look at this. ESV translation is on the screen there. Listen to God's word here. The words of Job are ended. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Berushal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because he was older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. God's word. God's word for us. You know, you know we lack in ourselves the, 
the righteousness that our holy God requires because we're sinners. We're by, we sin by nature and by choice, but there's good news. The good news is that despite our lack of righteousness, God gives us the perfect righteousness that he demands. That's the good news. That's the great news of the gospel. It's given to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's, let's review, as we've talked about in this sermon series, the sufferings of Job very briefly. There, he lost a couple things. In the first chapter, he lost all of his stuff. He lost all the material things he had, and even his family, uh, he, he lost them. They, they, they were gone. In, in, in the second chapter, he lost his health. He was miserable. He wanted to die. He was feeling so, so bad. And there's a question we could all ask, maybe as, a, as, a, as the book unfolds, that maybe he lost his relationship with God. He lost his fellowship with God. We know that sense of God being with him. He lost that. He lost that. You know, you know, things happen in life that cause us to question some of the basic assumptions we have. Things happen, don't they? And that's what's happened to Job. We're going uh, to look at the passage regarding Job's righteousness. The text talks about that. We've got to deal with that. And then I'm going to try to seek to apply that, this thing about righteousness to our lives, okay? Now, now Job's friends, they stopped talking. Back in chapter 25, if you have a Bible, glance back there. Um, Bildad was talking in a very brief chapter. He was interrupted by Job. Job began to talk and talk and talk from chapter 26 uh, to the end, 3140, which is where, he, where his, his sayings end. And then in, 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 in verse 1 of 32, the narrator steps in and tells us that the men stopped this back and forth because Job was righteous in his own eyes. And it's interesting is the narrator is that the narrator's commentary on Job, or is he merely saying that that was the friend's understanding of Job? We're not sure. We're not totally sure. But during, as we look at the passage, I want to look at the passage in terms of not just the passage, but I want to look at these three these three entities here: the three friends of Job. I want to look at, at, at Elihu. I want to look at Job himself. I want to talk about just how we're to view them in the book. Because I think we're kind of in the middle of things, and, and, and it's easy to get lost in this book as you read it. The three friends of Job. Um, who are they? Well, Job had an interesting phrase for them in, in chapter 16, verse 2. He called them miserable comforters. <laughs> miserable comforters. He says, I heard many things, such things, miserable comforters are you all. Job 16, 2. After many chapters of dialogue, they have now stopped trying to get Job to agree with them to change his mind. They, they, they gave up at this point in chapter 31 and 32. I have a chart here that will give you a, a review of the book in, in, one, in one page. In fact, you can grab a chart um, at the uh, connections table, but just to give you a big picture view of the book. Of course, you have, a, you have the introduction and you have the, the, the epilogue, the, the prologue and the epilogue by the narrator. Chapter 3, Job's despair, his deep despair. And then you have the bulk of the content is these cycles. Cycles of dialogue. Three cycles of, 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 of Job's friend talking, and then, and then Job responds. And then another friend talks, and he responds. And another friend talks, and he responds. It's, a, it's a three of these cycles from, from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 31. Uh, and then in chapter 32, which is what we talk, we're focusing on today, the verse we heard, is where there's a shift because a, a fourth figure comes who we haven't heard from. His name is Elihu. We'll look at him in a second. And then 
He, he talks for a few chapters. And then finally the book ends when God and Job, Job finally talk at the end. It's a big picture. 42 chapters. Now some of it is narrative, but most of it is poetic. Most of it is poetry. And, and your, our English Bibles try to, try to reflect that poetry. So the main body is these three sets of dialogue. One of Job's three friends speaks and he answers, and another answers, back and forth. Um, now, the, the, the monologue of Elihu, it stands kind of as a bridge between the main, this main section and then when God shows up. And so this figure, Elihu, is very interesting. We'll talk about him in a few minutes. But who are these other three men? Uh, David Jackson, the commentator, has uh, very well, I think, uh, summarized who these men are in, 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 maybe in, in context of our lives. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Eliphaz was a gentleman of Job's age or older, a pietistic man, something along the lines of a Baptist deacon or Presbyterian elder. Most probably he would be a businessman or a merchant or terrified of confrontation. Bildad was another gentleman, but more of a moralist. He wallows in a prospect of God's punishing the immoral. And then there's Zophar. He's a clinical person. He's a logician. His theology is impersonal. He has no time for sentimentality. He's clinical and arrogant, and the closest thing we have in our culture would be the stereotype of the cold medical practitioner who treats patients like meat. So again, as you look at the, 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 their comments, the back and forth, you, you get a picture of what these men are like. Now here's a, a few things that we can learn about the cycles as we look at those Three cycles. One, each of the cycles, um, they get shorter. <laughs> the, the first, the second, and the third, e each one gets shorter as you go on. The, short, the cycles get shorter. In fact, the last cycle is cut short. Zophar doesn't even get to talk because Job just, Job's going to talk, and they, it's, they're, they're obviously saying, look, he's not listening anyway. So the last cycle is the shortest. During the cycle, Job's three friends, intending to help Job, they frustrate Job and Job frustrates them. <laughs> it's a lot of frustration as, the thing, as it goes on. But both Job and his friends seem to have a very common view, a, a, a similar view, in the beginning of the discussion. Th th their views are very similar. Here, it's, it's like this. The righteous obey God and are blessed. But, but the wicked disobey God and are cursed. They're not blessed. I believe all four of them began with that assumption. The, the theme of their discussion moves from suffering to how wisdom is to be understood in a world uh, with, with so much suffering. Though Job's friends maintain a very simplistic view, they keep that, Job's view becomes much more complex. That's the dramatic tension in the story the dialogues. None of them seem to be able to allow for a sense of mystery. They want answers. They want everything in a neat little box. They want to understand God in a neat little box. They think they understand God. Job did initially, but he became frustrated and decided that the box didn't necessarily work. So he asked God to come down and explain himself. He knows his assumptions are wrong, but none of what's right. God, tell me, how should I be looking at this stuff? 
So all along the book, we thought Job was on trial, didn't we? But now it seems that God's on trial. Look, even when the dialogue is over, all four of them have the false understanding that before we can trust God, we have to fully understand him. Wrong. Wrong. So Job's three friends are frustrated and they just stop. Now, this, this gentleman, Elihu, let's look at the text. He enters the scene in, in, in chapter 32. Who is he? His name is Elihu, which means he is my God. It's a godly name. His tribe, the son of Berkel, the Buzzite, the family of Ram. One commentator says that he's the only character in the book with a genealogy, which probably points to the fact that he was of aristocratic heritage. I didn't know that, that fact. His father's name means God blesses. So clearly there's, there's some godliness in his family. His age, he's a young man. Look, look at verse, uh, the verse here, the verse 4. Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. So he, he waited his turn. Mama raised him well, right? He shows respect for his elders. But I, I like to say that by the time he talks, he has a bloody tongue because he's been biting it for so long. He's been wanting to talk. But he said, let, me, let, me, let me talk to you. We got a bloody tongue. He's been holding back. He's been waiting for one of them to maybe say something that would, that, that would, that would help Job hear what he needs to hear. You know, it's quite interesting that his conclusion actually wasn't too different than theirs. It was as though he thought they were not doing a good job of explaining themselves, that he could do it better. His attitude is clearly, you got to step aside, you old guys. Let me, let me show you how it's done. That seems to be the attitude of Elihu. Listen to what he said. Why do I, why do I say it? Listen to what he says later in this chapter. Verse 6, I am young in years and you're aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. And he says, uh, it's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what's right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. And behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. And then in verse 16, shall I wait because they did not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? In other words, they're not saying anything. Should I just keep waiting? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. It, it moves on. You, begin, you can see it as it builds his confidence. You know, there's a lot of eyes and my's in what he said in that, in that chapter. He, he, he's very confident in himself that though the old guys couldn't do it, he could do it. Now, often younger generations feel they have all the answers. I'm not sure that's always right. You know, the, the biblical worldview world is that wisdom often resides in elders, not the young. However, if we're to really weigh the advice of the, the three men and of Elihu a bit closer, you'll find Elihu was a little bit closer to the truth than the others were. He was. His monologue reflected some of the wisdom that God would soon give in the storm. 
when he shows up in chapters 38 to 42. And more importantly, most importantly, when God rebuked the three men at the end of the story, he does not rebuke Elihu. So Elihu had a little bit more truth in what he said, though clearly his attitude is troublesome, <laughs> to say the least. In his monologue, which is the longest monologue of the whole book, he talks longer than God talks, by the way, <laughs> his section. It's four speeches, and the, the writer clearly wants us from the beginning to, to frame his attitude, his posture. Look at the verses again in those verses. Four times we are told he burned with anger. Did you catch that? He burned with anger. He, he's an arrogant kind of a man. He thinks he can do what the old gray heads couldn't do. Uh, Jackson, again, uh, capsulizes this. He says, Elihu was a young man, probably a student, full of his knowledge and righteous indignation. He's a young Turk with fire in his belly, out to prophetize the world and convince he is right and everyone else is an idiot. That's him. He's got all the answers. Youthful arrogance. I remember when I was young, after I finished college, you know, got involved, was involved in university and, and read the Bible and studied the Bible and, and when I understood the whole Bible. I, I just knew it all. I understood it. Remember those days? <laughs> and um, then I lived a little bit longer and realized that everything didn't fit into a nice, cozy, tidy box. Uh, perfect example of that is, is uh, my understanding of, of prophecy and the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, I thought I understood that. <laughs> I thought I understood that, but I really didn't. I really didn't. I, Jesus didn't come in the 70s. Didn't return in the 70s. He didn't. That surprised some of us. To the three friends, he simply says this. Your arguments may be somewhat correct, but they're not only weak, they aren't delivered well. Let me show you how to deliver that message. That's, what he, that, that's his attitude. To Job, he says this. You've done some great sin. We all know that. And you're sinning now and accusing God of being unjust, and you're sinning by asking God to explain things to you as if he owes you an explanation. That's what, he, that's what he's, his attitude towards Job. And to all four of them, Elihu's attitude is, simply this, and he's right here. You know, God is bigger than you think. God is wiser than you think. You know, in that, Elihu was exactly right. He was totally right. And, that, and that's how he kind of ends his monologue, with that kind of an understanding. So that's Elihu. Now, Job. Job, the man Job. Jackson says that Job was a man in his 50s, quite distinguished and cultured, well-educated and of noble social class. Elihu has some tough things to say about, about uh, a brother Job in, in these verses. And the question, is Elihu correct? Is he correct? Is Job really self-righteous? Chapters 38 to 42 will give some of the answers to that, but, but let me look a little at this idea of pursuing righteousness first and, and seeking to live an upright, righteous, holy life. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Is Job really a righteous man seeking to live a holy life, to be righteous? You know, the thing I love about this book of Job as I look at it is that the characters are not simple. <laughs> They're real. <laughs> They're complex. One of the messages of the book is don't make the mistake of thinking that you can simplify God into a box or people into a box. 
into an easy formula and, 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 and so you can understand simply. We shouldn't do that with one another. We certainly shouldn't do that with God. Elihu speaks great wisdom about God's sovereignty, God's power, God's majesty, especially towards the end when the clouds get dark and the storm is on the horizon. But he's wrong in believing, just like Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz, that Job is going through this experience because Job has done some great sin that he won't confess. That Job is not willing to confess a great sin and is therefore drowning in self-righteousness. No. Chapter 31 is, is quite interesting. There, we, 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 the previous chapter, we see something of Job's, of Job's attitude. And as you, read, as you read that chapter, you might think that he was self-righteous. I, mean, I won't read it, but let me just show you some of the things he talks about. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to gaze at a virgin. He says that, that he sought to live a life with integrity of heart. He says that he has not taken another man's wife. He's very graphic in, saying, in how he describes that. He says he has not oppressed his servant or the poor or the fatherless. He's saying he has not lusted after wealth. He's saying he hasn't hated his enemies. He, he's saying some great things about himself. And, and, and so that chapter ends, and, and we see Job is a very frustrated man. He's frustrated not because he's committed some great sin that has caused suffering, but it's the exact opposite. He has not committed some great sin, and yet is experiencing great suffering. Because the point is, either he's lying in what he said in chapter 31, or that's who he really is. <laughs> and I think that's who he is. He's loving, kind, respectable, wise, friendly. He's a good husband. There's, he's a good father. He goes to church every week. He's, he, he's a kind guy that you want to have as your neighbor. This is Mr. Job. And yet his world is falling apart. And he doesn't understand why. He doesn't. Now, I don't think that Job would have ever articulated what we call a prosperity gospel. You know, you know, if you live righteously, God will bless you. If you live wickedly, bad things will happen. I don't think he would have articulated that if you gave him a theological examination before all this happened, no. However, I believe deep down in Job and in all of us is a little bit of prosperity thinking. That if we do right, good things will happen. And if we don't do right, well, karma All of us got a little bit of that in us, don't we? Uh, I'm surprised to see my, 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 my grandbaby Nora in the hospital because I, I, didn't, I didn't ask her, but her picture's on the slide today. Nora's been in the hospital, and she's in the house today. It's good to see Nora. But um, Nora, I'm talking about you now, okay? <laughs> we had a, quite a week a few weeks ago. Nora was in the hospital for over a week. We didn't know what was going on. You know, we, they figured out what it was. and said, she'll be there for over a week. And we were saying, some of you pray. Thank you for your prayers. Um, but, you know, when something like that happens, and that's just, I know all of you have things like that that happen. You don't know what's going on. I remember a book by James Dobson, When God Doesn't Make Sense. You all have those times when God just doesn't seem to make sense. You're like, what's going on here? During those times, you begin to ask questions, don't you? 
Say, God, where are you? I thought, I, you know, I, I, thought I, was, I thought you were my father. I thought you were going to tear me, take care of me. You begin, your whole view of God can get, like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a hurricane, can get shifted. We've all been there, haven't we? What, what does Job know? He knows he's not perfectly blameless. He's no worse than others. He knows that. He, he knows that God is wise and, and God is good and God is merciful, and so he needs to trust this God. He, he knows that, he believes that, 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 that ultimately God will do what is just and right. He knows that about God. He knows that God is not punishing him for something he's done, like these others are saying. Job is in a quite an interesting, complex place. Now, I want to I apply some of this for us in our own lives today. Because first of all, we, you know, we're called to pursue righteousness. We are called to pursue a righteousness in our lives, just like Job pursued righteousness. A couple of New Testament verses, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. It is not wrong to pursue righteousness. I love the end of Philippians chapter 3, in the middle of that chapter, where Paul talks about pursuing righteousness through Christ. Job was several times called blameless, even by God. And when pushed into a corner by his friends, Job sounds like he's declaring himself to be the most blameless, holy, righteous person on earth. And we have to certainly take that into consideration when thinking about these accusations of the text that he sought to justify himself. But we also, not to forget how the book begins in chapter 1. The narrator of the prologue sets this entire thing up with the fact that Job was a worshiper who believed in the offerings for sin. He believed that seeking a, a life, uh, to live a life of blamelessness was, was right. He, Job, did, did Job ever in his non-emotional, non-frustrated moments claim to be a totally righteous person? No, he wouldn't. I don't think so. Elihu's saying that Job is not righteous man is only partially correct. Just quickly, that, that first chapter, look, look at the things that God said about this man that, that, that Elihu says justifies himself. God says this, he's, that he was blameless and upright, that he feared God and turned away from evil, that he had burnt offerings for himself and for his, his children. That, that he, in verse, chapter 1, verse 8, that uh, he was blameless, upright man, fears God, turns away from evil. Uh, 2, verse 3, the same four things elicit, elicit added, that he held fast his integrity. The picture, the framing of the book is, is that there's some who would frame this book to say that Job wasn't probably a, an authentic follower of God, that he was just a self-righteous man. Now, I believe that God is just putting his stamp of approval on Job. Job was a righteous man in a sense. He had what I call relative righteousness. He wasn't pure, absolutely righteous. No, we know that. But he had a relative righteousness. And we're all called to, to live a righteous, holy, upright life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says, you may be blameless and pure, Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. We're called to be blameless and pure. But you see, that's where the problem begins to happen because this very healthy sense of 
pursuing righteousness and having a relative righteousness very easily deteriorates into an ugly self-righteousness. Very easily. And, and there are no people more ugly than self-righteous religious people. Blind to what living holy can look like to others. An example this week that came across me was a, a televangelist in Louisiana who um, well, he, he's holy and he's righteous and he's so committed to getting the gospel out that he's now trying to get his um, audience to give money for his fourth jet plane to preach the gospel. Why he needs four? I don't know. Why he needs one? <laughs> I don't know. Well, he says it's because he needs to preach the gospel. He says if Jesus were alive today, he would have a jet plane. My point is, this what happens, that's what happens when religion takes over. Seeking first the kingdom as you understand it, but not seeking righteousness, as the word of God tells us to do. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. True righteousness leads to humility and repentance, not arrogance and self-righteousness and, and entitlement mentality. Like Job, we are not righteous. Like Job, we are not righteous. There's another problem. Our righteousness in terms of trying to earn favor with God gains us nothing. Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So, so Job's friends are correct in one sense, only partially. Job was not a righteous man. He was unrighteous. Matthew 5, 20 says, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the kind of righteousness that we must have. And the good news of the gospel is that's the kind of righteousness that God gives us, as we saw in Romans chapter 3. You know, the book of, of Exodus, we have the law of God given to us, chapter 20, and you're into that book. The law of God is given and showing us what righteousness looks like, showing us what holiness looks like. And you know the next book of the Bible is the book of Leviticus. Why? Because we cannot keep that law. We're sinners. And, and those who break the law need offering. We need a sacrifice. Leviticus shows relational sins. It shows sins against families, sins against the poor, corporate sins, sexual sins, unintentional sins, all kinds of sins. There's offering provided in Leviticus for all kinds of sins. Like Job, we are not righteous. Thirdly, we, we can trust, though, in the righteous Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life to justify or declare righteous sinful people like me and, and you. That's the good news. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an old book it was entitled, I'm okay and you're okay, trying to, trying to help us to feel better about ourselves. Now, I, if I were to write a book, I would write a book called, I'm not okay and you're not okay, but Jesus is okay, so it's okay. That's the book. That's the book I want to write. Because we're not okay, but Jesus Christ has solved our, our, our sin problem. Job had an intuition, though. He had an intuition that God was going to somehow provide a solution. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't, have all, he didn't know all that we know, but he had some intuition. He had some feelings. 
Job, Job 9, he says, is there an arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us? He says, exactly for an, 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 a negotiator, an arbiter, someone to come between them, a mediator. He says, even now, my witness is in heaven. Someone who knows really what happens and knows he hasn't done some great sin in heaven. He's got a, he said, I got a witness in heaven. I don't have a witness on earth. You guys don't know. But in heaven, I got a witness, he says. In the chapter 19, the text Craig will talk about next week, he's got a, he said, I, I know I got a redeemer somewhere. I got a redeemer, and, and, and he's going to make it all right. I know my redeemer lives. I got a, I've got a mediator. I've got a witness. I've got a redeemer. Job has some instincts and intuitions that God's going to fix it up. So we understand clearly now that Job, that, that Jesus is our righteousness. Job didn't have that clarity of revelation. Now, why does Job repent in the end of the book? Well, we have to hold on. Were his friends correct? Was his wife correct? Who said, curse God and die? Was, was Elihu correct? As you read the book, Job, think about how it ends. Think about what's going on there at the end. We'll dive into that in a couple of weeks. But what, but, but what we do know is this. Job's sufferings point to the sufferings of another who not only was perfectly righteous, but suffered perfectly righteously. Jesus on the cross, totally innocent. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Suffering righteously. And because he suffered righteously, we are justified by what he did. Justified. Not, it, it's more than a racehorse, folks. It's what God does for the ungodly when they put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. He counts us as righteous. Indeed, Job is righteous, but he's not righteous enough. And the same is true for us. If you know Christ and are walking with him and pursuing godliness, it's never enough. It's never enough. We are saints, perfectly righteous, even while we're sinners. How's that? That's the beauty of the gospel, because we have the record of Lord Jesus Christ counted to us. Every, every month we celebrate the supper, the Lord's Supper, reminding ourselves that it's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness in, in which we live and walk and serve and trust. The Apostle John had great words about this. This is the message we've heard. From him, and we proclaim to you <clears throat> that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Later in the second chapter, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is a propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins only, 
for the sins of the whole world. We celebrate the, the, the supper because even though we are unrighteous before a holy God, we can stand righteous because of Jesus who died for our sins. And this, this supper is for those who understand the implications of what he did and are trusting in what he did, who have repented of their sins and turned to Jesus Christ and seeking to walk in faithfulness to him in the context of his, of his body, seeking to, 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 to follow him and be used by him to live a life that is pleasing, and, but realizing that you'll never do that. And that you confess your sins and you come back to walk in the light. Let me ask the officers to come forward as we continue. This, this table is not my table. It's the Lord's table, the table of the Lord. Believers through the centuries have celebrated this ordinance, this sacrament, in, in, in celebration and joy of what Christ has done for sinners. If, if you understand that, you're, you're invited to come. If you don't, we ask you to pause and pray that God might make it clear to you what it means to really know him in truth and to be his child, his son, his daughter. If, you're, if, you're, if you're, your children are here, children have been invited through the, through the parents through the session to partake of this, you know who you are. Um, God loves children as well. Actually, but the, the scriptures warn us to, to, that we should examine ourselves, that we don't take these elements in an unworthy way. So let's take, pause for a second and, and do a silent prayer to the Father yourself. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this remembrance of me. And he, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant that shed for the remission of sins. Drink it, remembrance of me. Whenever you eat the bread and, and drink the cup, you proclaim my death till I come again. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Eat all of it together. <clears throat> God's grace is with us all. The blood of the new covenant that's shed for the remission of our sins. blood of Christ. Drink all of it together. That's peace. Be with us. Let's pray. Well, thank you for the blood that never loses its power, that washes all our sin away. Lord, may we trust it, may we rest in it, may we proclaim it. In Jesus' name, amen.